0: want to be able to bring in Ken's case, so let's talk about your patient. Okay. This is an 88-year-old white male, World War II B-17 pilot, second marriage lasting 43 years and continuing well, who smoked from 1943 to 1946 and stopped the day he left the service. He's a retired general practice attorney, who on May 8, 2008, fell. He tripped on the sidewalk while walking in the crack. He had the rubberized shoe with the and got stuck between the two cement slabs and fractured his left hip. A pre-op chest x-ray showed a 6-centimeter peripheral right lower lobe mass. CAT scan of the chest, PET of the chest, CT of the abdomen, CT of the brain were otherwise all negative and his labs were normal. His EKG, however, showed sick sinus syndrome and a pacemaker was placed as well as a left total hip replacement done on May 9, 2008. Prior history? None. Lifestyle, Very active in our community, on numerous community boards. He is really well-known throughout the area as being, you know, a citizen of, uh, you know, that's what he's been doing for the last 15 years. Very active in the town. His post-op recovery was fine. He spent two weeks in a rehab center, is walking with a quad walker without any problems. A right lower lobe lobectomy was done on June the 10th. And there were no problems. Pathology showed moderately well-differentiated adenocarcinoma, stage 2B, T2, N1, M0. And the question is, what to do next? How many nodes did he get? 13. He had absolutely no post-operative problems. He was out of the hospital in five days.
1: What was his attitude about the possibility of adjuvant therapy?
0: I think it's important to recognize, this is a gentleman who flew 47 missions over Germany, did two tours, Jewish, knew what was going to happen if he landed. Actually, it's just been written up in the U.S. Army 8th. He said, I will do whatever is needed. He and his wife travel around the world. You don't see him during the wintertime for the most part. He wants to live. His family is fully supportive. He has two families, from his first and second wife, and whatever he wants to do. Now, interestingly enough, he went to the VA. Being 88 years old, to get an understanding, because medications and anything else in the exam... And the discussion, I said, when you go there, ask him about something like Tarceva or something else as an oral agent. And they said that he should receive no therapy, and they would pay for no treatment. So we know that he will not get any VA assistance because the VA is very active in our area with giving a lot of oral the medications. When we know we have a veteran, we will send them to the East Orange VA or Lions VA.
1: Now, would you consider him an oligo smoker? Absolutely. He's, he's had, what, four years of smoking? Three.
0: 1943 to 1946.
1: Vince Miller and those people have tried to look at that as an almost as a non-smoking group. You know, Rogeri, I still don't understand. And again, these docs must be thinking the same thing. You know, every time we see a breast cancer patient, we're looking at HER2, ER. You know, now colon cancer, we're looking at KRAS. Why doesn't everybody who get a resection at least get a mutation status?
2: And I think that's an excellent point. And someone like this absolutely should, because it may have a huge impact on what you end up doing with him. So let's talk about this a little bit. What's his prognosis? You know, so if we do nothing, what are the chances that he will be alive without disease five years from the time of resection with stage two B disease? Probably 40%. 40%. That's what I gave him. That's the odds I gave him, 40%. 40%. What's
1: so, the odds of an 88-year-old being alive in five years without well, then, cancer? Then
2: the second aspect is what's his life expectancy? <laughs> you know. So. And I know there are tables that can help us with that, but my understanding is that somebody who gets to be 88 and has no other major medical problems has a life expectancy that I think is about seven years. It is seven years five to seven? It is
0: seven or? years in men and 11 years in women. Yes.
2: So there's a good chance that this man may end up dying of lung cancer. You know, in the following five years, which
1: is a problem. We're certainly, even if he dies of something else, living with recurrent disease. Well, yeah.
0: that's when we brought this up. And also, he, nothing is going to say that this individual is not smart. He has seen friends, and he knows about, what I always say about people who are dying of lung cancer is that they're treading water in an ever-growing pool. And it's very difficult to keep your head above water and do anything else except to breathe. And if he can prevent that as much as possible, he's willing to do. And so the question is a perfect, here is my tumor board. Yeah. What should I do? Because so I'm seeing him. So you can next certainly, week.
2: based on this, based on his prognosis on the one hand and his life expectancy on the other hand, you can certainly make a case for active treatment in someone like him. Problem is, we don't have any data for adjuvant chemotherapy in patients over the age of eighty. Certainly not those approaching ninety, as this man is. In fact, the only data we have, which we alluded to yesterday, was a retrospective analysis of the Canadian trial that was published in the JCO that looked at people over the age of 65, so really not even true elderly, certainly not for Florida standards, and they showed the same efficacy and relatively good tolerance. But when you get to 75+, plus, those patients did not seem to do as well, but they had very few patients know over the age of 75 so 88 year old treated with adjuvant chemotherapy is going to be an anecdote and that's as far as we can go so bottom line would you bottom, treat him? I would not treat this man with adjuvant chemotherapy not even a carboplatin based regimen but I would given the fact that his smoking history is what it is I would certainly check
0: his EGFR mutation status
1: and if that's negative I would leave him
0: alone You think he'd be okay with that? Yes. One of the things with this gentleman and the elderly, and I have an elderly father, is as long as they're healthy or they're tottering. I mean, their performance status really is a one. I mean, they you know he takes his naps, he does his activity, but he's he's not like he was. He himself recognizes it that he's even from five years ago. He says he doesn't even act like he thinks like an eighteen-year-old, but he is older. He knows how old is he? He's eighty-eight. This is not my dad. This is the gentleman, eighty-eight. Right. But the gentleman did you know get his pacer? He did get his total hip. I mean, he did fly over Germany 47 times. I mean, this guy's got 12 lives. He doesn't have nine. And it's almost like if he gets sick, he's going to crash. And one of the things I'm really very sensitive to is to keep him going for as long as possible. I like the idea of checking the mutational status. How long would that take, incidentally? Two weeks. And I just got to get it, figured out Are you getting that in your
1: practice? I am not.
0: I am not. Do you see what I'm saying about why? I mean, this is
1: a very predictive thing. You look at other tumors, it's kind of... Who, uh, t- well, I think you the, see the, what the, I'm saying? No, say-
2: I, I really see it very well. I mean, we are doing it in so many other tumors, except, I mean, we do it even ovarian now. We check estrogen receptor. We check for the future. And we don't do that in long. I Well, don't I know. think the
0: other point is I was going to bring up is it's not a cost-benefit. I want to say survival benefit. You know, in breast cancer, we always get this feeling there's always going to be something else. They're going to do better. If we get them through the toxicity, you're looking at a significant clinical Yeah, but I mean, you thing. look at the
1: response rates with the TKIs, Erlotinib and eressa. And the mutation positive patient and they're at least as high as trastuzumab and HER2 positive breast cancer. Uh, oh yeah. Much
0: higher. Probably. Higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. So you know the issue is <laughs> real that, disconnect. Um, yeah. I thought it was very interesting and I spoke with the oncologist at the VA and they were very you know adamant so we just got to go back and talk to them about it which I will do when I come back. And what
1: about just giving them erlotinib and don't get the test?
2: Yeah I'd be reluctant to do that because then we don't have any evidence that this will be helpful and Erlotinib is not always easy, especially at 150 mg daily. You know, there are some people who really suffer, especially elderly people. I'm sure you all have had this in your practices.
1: So I, I mean, if we okay, have that true? a Do documented er- predictor, yes. Do you think erlotinib specifically, I'm not talking about chemo, but erlotinib is more poorly tolerated in older patients? Could be. At 150, yes. It yeah. doesn't exactly ring true. When I think about what erlotinib does, I wouldn't, I don't know. I mean... It's heterogeneous. I have patients who are incredibly sensitive to it. I can't get more than I, 25 milligrams I, mm-hmm. a day in. <laughs> because patient. of what? Usually the rash? The rash. What about diarrhea? That, that tends to be episodic. It's not a continuous thing. Also the fingernail issues, the as they develop. You know, I just think that it's expressed in different amounts across the population. You know, the target. And some people seem to do okay with it. Others are incredibly sensitive.
2: How long would you treat him for? Yeah, Hmm. so we don't know the answer to that, but I would follow, there's an adjuvant trial, a phase three study. That might be another option for him if he's willing to accept a placebo option, but that's the radiant study. And that's erlotinib or placebo in patients who are either not candidates for chemo or refuse chemo or even after receiving four cycles of chemo. So in that study, the erlotinib goes for two years. And
1: is there an age limit in that study?
2: Not that I know of. Now, you have to be EGFR positive by either IHC or FISH, not mutation.
1: One more thing about markers in terms of, you know, again, you have this surgical specimen at least. Mm -hmm. I mean, another issue would be, you know, the biopsy and metastatic disease. But here you have a big fat surgical specimen. What else would you like to see? You know, if it were you, what would you like to see? Would you like to see FISH done on this tumor?
2: I think that might be helpful, yes, as far as a predictor, not as a prognostic factor. I think KRAS would be important because if he does have a KRAS mutation, it's unlikely that he would benefit from erlotinib, even with a wild-type EGFR tumor. KRAS remains as a very powerful negative predictor for EGFR TKIs. We had a discussion about cetuximab and KRAS, and we don't know how that will apply to non-small cell lung cancer. And then another one that might be of help, even though it may not change your recommendation, is ERCC1, which is also relatively easy just because it's a prognostic factor.
1: And can you talk more about what we know about that?
2: So ERCC1 happens to be both a prognostic and a predictor factor. People who have tumors with um, high expression of RCC1 actually happen to have a better prognosis. And yet, those are the patients who tend not to benefit from platinum-based chemo. So this was a question that was addressed yesterday, you know, would you perhaps not offer or not recommend someone chemotherapy if their tumor expressed ERCC1? And I don't think we know the answer to that because still the overall prognosis is poor but they tend to do better than low expressors. Ken?
0: Yeah, the question just struck me with two points. With the SWOG trial, Dr. Hanna's work at HOGS, you know, consolidation taxotere, I thought was essentially a death knell, and yet they're continuing it, you had mentioned. The second question is follow-up, Dr. Levy, with PET scanning. If you have disease, and I don't know the answer, but I use CAT scanning, because if I'm essentially just looking at size of lesions for follow-up, and not so much of metabolic activity, since I know it's disease, and there's a lot of interest in our hospital administration, not to use a lot of PET scanning, really with reimbursement issues more than anything. And PET CTs, we can go off the beaten path on that one. So I'd like to know what your feelings are of how you follow disease in the chest.
2: So the first question, you know, is, is consolidation dead in stage three disease? And I think it's, as far as using a cisplatin and toposide, you know radiation regimen followed by docetaxel i think you can't justify that outside of a clinical research trial the swog study that looks at bevacizumab just happened to be designed you know before the hog study was actually presented and they felt that they didn't have to change that structure despite the hog trial that's obviously open to judgment The problem is not everybody, and maybe you can tell me what you do, not everybody is comfortable with the notion that two cycles of systemic chemotherapy in stage 3 disease are enough, because it's sort of counterintuitive, you know, based on everything else we know about this disease. You know, if you look at adjuvant, we're sort of settled on four cycles. If we look at advanced disease... We're now at a minimum four cycles if you ignore the whole maintenance issue for now. So why in stage three disease, in patients who have an extraordinarily high risk of systemic dissemination, two cycles will be sufficient? So what RTOG is doing, what CLGB is doing is they're basically taking the same regimen that's being used during the radiation and just using it for two additional cycles after the radiation. But you're absolutely right. As far as that template, you know, the 9504 template, the cisatoposite radiation followed by three cycles of docetaxel, it's difficult to justify outside of research. The second point is I tend to follow my patients mostly with CAT scans. So unless there's a reason to believe that the disease changed significantly, other sites of metastatic disease or questions that you can't really answer on CAT scans, I don't usually get pet skins. Patients, however, ask for pet skins. I don't know if that's your practice or not, but many patients will come and say, why are you not doing pet skins? And why are you just doing cat skin if you know that the pet skin is, quote, more sensitive. It's a very difficult discussion because you have to lead that discussion in terms of, well, it is more sensitive, and yet it may not make a difference in how your disease is managed or in your prognosis, which most patients are not really willing to listen or happy to
1: accept. So, any other questions, Isaac? Isaac. Yeah, what's the status of the Radiant trial? Is that so? Uh, radiant had a is that little a still issue. Still accruing? Or
2: yeah, is that? so it accrued a certain number of patients. There was a problem with the randomization at one point. So the trial had to be closed and reopened. So it's again open for accrual. We don't have that trial here because we are supporting the other phase 3 adjuvant trial, which is the ECOG trial 1505. And that's chemotherapy with or without bevacizumab. And that's a high priority study for the NCI. And we actually have four or five patients on that study already.
1: Can you talk more about the eligibility and design of the study? These docs are very used to adjuvant BEV trials. A lot of you participated in the NSABP CO8 study that should be reporting efficacy pretty soon. There's adjuvant breast studies looking at BEV. What about the lung study? So
2: 1505, the PI for that study is Heather Wakeley out of Stanford, looks at three regimens, and you choose one of those three cisplatin-based regimens, it's cis-docetaxel, cis or cis with or without bevacizumab, in patients with 1B disease, but only those who have tumors of 4 centimeters or larger, and 2A to 3A. So, 1B with large tumors, 2A, to b and 3A patients. And that's a study that will answer an important question. We hope to complete this in a timely fashion.
1: Can you talk about the chemo in that study and how patients respond you know, to those three alternatives?
2: I think most investigators have come to the conclusion that in the adjuvant setting, cisplatin is the preferred platinum analog. There's a lot of debate about the carboplatin paclitaxel CALGB trial, which I prefer not to get into at this point. But I think it's accepted by most people that if you're able to use you know, cisplatin, that's the preferred agent. And whether you combine that with docetaxel or, or gemcitabine or vinorobine, most people also accept that there probably isn't a huge difference in efficacy among those three regimens. But there is an issue of toxicity, so slightly different toxicity profiles, and also schedules of administration and what it requires. I personally don't use cisplatin vinorelbine, just because I don't like the way that regimen is given. I don't find it easy, especially in the adjuvant setting, convenient. And I prefer to use one of the other two regimens. That's what I use in my practice.
1: And how do you decide between those two?
2: I take into consideration patients' preferences at that point. You know, so some people don't really like to come more than once every three weeks, you know, so they like the cystocytaxel regimen, and they don't care about the hair loss. And in that case, I almost always use prophylactic growth factors, just like we heard yesterday from Tom and others. You know, if someone comes to me and says, okay, I will do this, but I don't really want to lose my hair and the hair loss becomes a deal breaker, and then in that case I tend to move on to cystium cytobine, even though they understand they have an extra visit you know, after the initial dose. And I try not to use ports in the adjuvant setting, so I try not to put ports in people. So I think we can get through those two regimens without a port, not with the cis though.
1: What about the older patient or patient with comorbidity who you are gonna give chemo to? Mm-hmm.
2: So that's probably the case that I would consider a carboplatin-based regimen. So if I see a patient who is borderline for cisplatin, but who has a high-risk tumor, then I will consider a carboplatin-based. In this case, it's carboplatin paclitaxel. You know, people with borderline kidney function, not necessarily age, but other comorbidities, then I use a carboplatin. But I have to say, I have really been very careful about that. I'm not liberal with the substitution of carboplatin for cisplatin.
0: The difficulty with this treatment, and it really is a big difficulty, is evaluation of renal function. Trying to collect a 24-hour urine in a young person is hard enough. In an elderly person who (laughs) dribbles, it's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know how best you do it. I doubt that you do calculations, but...
2: The interesting thing, Ken, is that for the ECOG trial, and that's an NCI study that has been through that process for two years it does not require a 24-hour urine collection so you can use one of the formulas okay cockcroft you know, based on uh, cockcroft yeah. Yeah. being the more prominent one so that's how
1: i do this what's the oldest person you've put on that study so far
2: 76 really yes interesting